Um, Ephesians 5, can we, uh, can we notice the tension in the air, please? <laughs> can I just plug a good book before I begin the sermon? It's called Married for God, Making Your Marriage the Best It Can Be, uh, by Christopher Ashe, who uh, not only is an old vicar of mine, but is also an extremely good chap and runs the Cornhill training course in London and is an excellent readable book on the sort of things that recovering today. Philip probably hasn't got it on the bookstore, but he can get it. So we're sat in the Victorian church, surrounded by Victorian houses, and after our reading this morning, some of you may be expecting a Victorian message. But it's far worse than that, because it's actually not 150 years old, it's 2,000 years old, and it's still applicable to us today. There is some difficult ground to cover this morning, not least verse 22 of our reading from Ephesians, and so I can't remember the page number or that, but Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And the problem is that as soon as we hear something like that and we start to talk about marriage or family life, immediately come flooding into our mind all our memories and experiences of our own childhood, maybe uh, the relationship between our parents. And maybe some of you had homes where your father was domineering. Perhaps others of you had uh, the experience where the, uh, the wife uh, ruled the roost. One man told reporters that the secret of happiness of his 80-year marriage was the two words, yes, dear. <laughs> Whatever your experience, it will probably influence how you're going to hear this message today. So we better pray, haven't we? Let's pray together. Father God, as we uh, come to your word once again this morning, we love and delight to hear what you have to say to us today. Lord, we pray that we not only find this teaching challenging, but we also find it in some way beautiful and comforting as well. Lord, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us by your spirit this morning. Amen. So it might be uh, worthwhile at this point just to remind ourselves of the central message, uh, the central argument of Ephesians. Ephesians shows that uh, Christ, in Christ, God has broken down the barriers that separated us from him. And also those barriers that separate us from one another. It talks about how he has established a whole new community, united under the one rule and the one head, that is Christ. And how one day the whole world will come under his rule. But for now, the church, that's us, we are the first fruits of all that God has in store for us, which is why relationships within this church must be completely transformed. What God has done in Christ must, by its very nature, bring about radical changes in the way that Christians behave, and particularly about the way that Christians treat one another. So in this morning's section, Paul turns his attention to how the rule of Christ must transform Christian marriage, Christian home life, and Christian work. And as we'll see, it's all fairly radical stuff. Now these are new relationships for a new society. Now you could teach, you could preach a sermon on all three of these different areas. But I don't have time to do that. So today I'm going to just concentrate on the marriage one and hopefully we'll carry some of the principles across to the other two areas. I'll probably save the children and obedience one for all-age service, perhaps. But first, we must note 
that marriage, if we're going to talk about marriage, is not just an institution. As Mae West once said, marriage is a great institution, but I'm not ready for an institution yet. (laughs) Marriage is not just an institution. It is a divine institution. It is, in fact, all about God. So let's have a look back at the immediate context, beginning at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the context here is Christians being filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. And when we get filled with the Spirit, we tend to overflow from that, and we overflow into worship, don't we? Encouraging each other with psalms, hymns, and songs, as it says. Singing and making music to the Lord, as we've just been doing. From our hearts, in a genuine act of adoration, we give thanks to God for everything. See, new relationships in marriage, in the home, or at work, begin with being filled by the Holy Spirit. They begin with sorting out the vertical relationship between ourselves and God, which leads us to worship and give thanks to God for everything. Therefore, if this morning you're, you're, you're visiting us here, or you're, you know that you haven't sorted that relationship with God out yet, that vertical relationship God, with God out yet, then what we have to say this morning probably won't make much sense to you at all. I think the question for you is slightly different. The question for you is, have a look around you, observe people in this church and other Christians that you know, and ask, are their relationships different? If they are, then ask why. And could it do with this man Jesus, we heard about in our our Gospel reading, who claimed to be God, and yet stood in front of 12 men and said, I am among you as one who serves. Could it be because of Jesus. But for us Christians, predominantly these verses apply to us Christians, to Christian marriages, parenthood, and children, and workplace. See, this isn't what Paul expects to find in the world. This is about what Paul expects to find between, in relationships which have been transformed by Christ. If you want that a bit clearer, just look how Paul rams that point home. So in verse 21... We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Literally, that means out of fear for Christ. Out of fear or awareness of his majesty and his deep power and simply trembling before him in his overwhelming love and compassion. Verse 22 on page 1176 says, Submit as you do to the Lord. As Christ, verse 23 says, As Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24 says, As the church submits to Christ. Verse 25 says, As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 29, Just as Christ does the church. Verse 32, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. uh, Chapter 6 and verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, Chapter 6, 4, Bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 6, 5, Slaves, obey your masters just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, Doing the will of God from your hearts. Verse 7, as, you were, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Verse 8, the Lord will reward each one for whatever the good they do. Verse 9, masters and slaves are responsible to the same master in heaven. So what we clearly have here, what we have to do and consider this morning, 
is we have to lay aside all our human issues about authority, about who is the greatest. The disciples in our Gospel reading were arguing, weren't they, about who is the greatest. We need to lay all that aside about who wears the trousers, who is better, more qualified, more capable, or brighter than another. Because at the heart of the issue for Christians here is are we taking our relationship with the Lord seriously? You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, we have to ask ourselves, are we sitting over God's word in judgment with our secular attitudes and values? Or are we sitting under God's word, allowing it to fashion our lives and relationships in such a way that it is truly radical and flows out of this being filled by the Holy Spirit and our worship of God? Now, at this point, it might be helpful to say, that nothing here speaks against the equality of men and women. We were created equal, both being made in the image of God. In Christ, there is no male or female, no slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that men and women were created the same. In the garden, Adam wasn't just lonely. He had just been given a job to do, to care for the garden. And what he needed was a helper. So I guess we have to be pretty thankful to God, really, that when God created a helper for Adam, he didn't create Alan Titchmarsh. (laughs) Just imagine that. I mean, they were naked and they weren't ashamed. Just doesn't bear thinking about. But no, when God created a helper for Adam, it says God made a woman from the rib, which leads to Adam's thankful cry, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for she was taken out of man. And the narrator proceeds, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and will become one flesh. Now, I'm not sure that Alan Titchmarsh would have had the same effect on Adam. He probably would have said, instead of this is my, now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he probably would have said, here's a spade, take a start on the nettles. But that difference between men and women is what complements man and makes him complete. We are equal, but we're also complementary. Just like, in fact, the relationship between Jesus and his Father, both are fully God. There's absolute equality between them. And yet, as we read in the New Testament, we find that Jesus submitted to his Father, he spoke of being sent by the Father, and he is commanded by the Father And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried, he said, not my will, but yours. So within the the, Godhead, the Trinity itself, we find equality and submission side by side, an equality of status and yet a difference side by side. Which means, in effect, that submission does not imply any loss of worth or value. When Jesus said to his disciples, I am here among you as a servant... He didn't lose any of his value when he washed their feet. He didn't lose any of his divinity, did he? uh, Peter thought that perhaps he did, but Jesus rebuked him quite severely. All of this means that marriage is a relationship which is based on some fairly fundamental principles of creation and the nature of God himself. Marriage is established in the Bible as a pattern for all cultures and all ages, A man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. 
But no one ever said it was going to be easy. And many of you here may be living with some great pain from your marriages because things have not gone right. And the whole of this passage is such a finely balanced theological argument from Paul that it can so easily tip one way or another with disastrous consequences. And I think Silver and I would be the first to say that we don't get this right all the time. I left the house this morning leaving a crying child in my wife's arms as I came here. <laughs> and marriage and family life is not always easy. And as a father, I've been known to exasperate my children on more than one occasion in more than one way. But that doesn't mean that we give up. Now, all of that was the context in the introduction to verse 22. But there's one more verse we need to look at before we get there. Verse 21. Verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. On its own, this verse brings to mind two Christians trying to walk through a door. After you. No, after you. No, after you. Or a situation in Christian gathering where you have a, have a large piece of cake and it gets down to the last, the last slice and nobody wants to be the one who takes the last slice. So they cut it in half thinking, well, I'll have that half and somebody else can have the next half. Then somebody else comes along and does the same thing. They cut it in half and thinking somebody else can have the other half. And then somebody else does the same, same thing. And so what you end up is this sort of pathetic little sliver of cake left on the plate that nobody wants to take because they don't want to be the last person to finish the cake. Unless it's me, I'll just come along and finish it. <laughs> but in this context, this verse, I don't think, can mean that we should all submit to one another all of the time. Firstly, because the word submit literally means to put under order or to put under structure. You see, mutual submission, submission in that context just doesn't make sense. What kind of order it is, is it if nobody accepts the responsibility of either being over or, for that matter, of being under? It would remain a disorder, a world without structure. Secondly, rather than mutual submission, I think the meaning is probably similar to Paul's language in Galatians 6 and verse 2, where Paul says, carry each other's burdens. See, there I don't think he means that we all swap each other's burdens and we each carry somebody else's burden. I think it just means that the people who can carry a burden carry the burdens, and the people who can't carry the burdens get them carried by somebody else. In the same way, if we need to submit to somebody, we need to do that out of reverence for Christ when it's appropriate to be submitting. And thirdly, if you just ignore that unhelpful heading in the NIV here, wives and husbands, verse 21 is actually really tightly linked to verse 22. It doesn't stand in a little paragraph on its own as it does in our Bibles. Paul didn't even uh, pause so much as to write the verb submit into verse 22. The meaning of verse 22 and that verb there, submit, is, simply, is, is completely missing in the original language. But they take the meaning of submit from verse 21, just taking it from the context of verse 21. So that means, putting all that together, that means that verse 21, submitting to one another, is tightly linked to its practical application. In verses 22, 6.1 and 6.5. So how do we submit to each other, to one another? Well, in the case of wives, by submitting to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. In the case of children, by obeying your parents and the Lord. 
in the case of slaves, by obeying your earthly masters as you would obey Christ. And it's all a very tightly linked argument. Now, does this matter? Well, it matters in the sense that some people see verse 21 as as a kind of let-out clause. But surely it's just mutual submission. We've all got to submit to each other all of the time, or at least most of the time. We need to get along well and submit when we need to, and everything's going to be fine. Paul is a child of his age, and his culture, he, he just reflects his culture in verses 22 through to chapter 6, verse 5. I think if Paul saw submission as only an important principle so that uh, his pagan neighbours weren't upset, he probably wouldn't have gone on about it for another 11 verses. Not just here, but also in Colossians, where there's a sort of a parallel passage in Colossians 3. He could have just ended after verse 21 and simply added, wives, you'd better submit to your husbands because we want the pagans to think well of Christianity. But instead of doing that, he ties it all into this very tight theological argument and reaffirms the headship of the man. The problem is that immediately here we start to think about the domineering husband and the, the, uh, the stereotype of the quiet, mousy wife just putting the meal on the table. Or perhaps you think about the other side, the manipulative wife, who says, I'll obey him just as soon as he believes that what I'm telling him are actually his own ideas. You see, neither of those is submission as Paul imagines it to be in the Lord. It doesn't mean this kind of arbitrary capitulation to the husband's will, whatever he asks. It is not the husband who is Lord here in verse 22, it is Christ who is Lord. It's not a charter for a Christian man to treat his wife like a doormat. And we'll see that more in a minute. But nor does it encourage the other side, that side of uh, subversive manipulation of the husband's will. Because Christian submission is a voluntary thing. It is as voluntary as our own submission to Christ as our Lord and Saviour. We don't submit to Christ saving us because we have to, do we? We allow ourselves to be saved because we want to. He doesn't make himself Lord over us. We submit to him as Lord because we realize there's no other way of knowing God. And in so doing, we, we, we don't give up any of our dignity. In fact, we gain dignity by doing that. But we do lose some of our autonomy. Our lives are not our own. Such submission is not weak. It's the same submission that says... With Christ and Gethsemane, not to do my will, but to do yours, Father. Nor is such piecemeal, uh, submission piecemeal. No, Paul says in verse 24, he says, submit to your husbands in everything. So with that in mind, what does Paul have to say to the husbands? Well, when we get to verse 25, if we were first century Romans or even Jews, we would expect Paul to turn to the husbands and say, now husbands, rule your, li- your wives. Perhaps if we're feeling generous, we would expect Paul to say, husbands, rule your lives, but do it nicely, do it well. Or something like that. But noticeably, he doesn't, does he? Instead, he gives husbands 115 words about how they must love their li- wives compared to the 40 he's just spoken to the wives. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
to make her holy. And again in verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives. And verse 33, each one of you must also love his wife. So husbands, if you want to be ahead and really love your wives, then firstly, you must give yourself up as Christ himself gave himself up for the church. The patterns of a husband's love is modelled by Christ was by giving his life as a ransom for many. It's nothing less than the self-sacrificial love of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Comparing Christian marriage to a pagan marriage where the husband did rule over the wife and the wives responded with unwilling servitude, C.S. Lewis writes, The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex the crown offered to it, even the pagan or the Christian mystery. For the one, the pagan, is of paper, and the other, the Christian, is of thorns. You know, some husbands promised before marriage that they'd lay down their lives for their wives. After marriage, they refuse to lay down their newspapers so that she can talk. Not so the Christian husband. Christian headship is not designed for self-serving enjoyment or some misguided concept of privilege or of rights. Christian headship is the root of the cross. Secondly, if you want to be heirs and really love your wives, then you must love her as you do your own body, in verse 28, and in verse 33, as you love yourself. Christopher Ash, who wrote that book, puts it like this. He says, The well-being of the one is intimately connected with the, others, with the other. When the church hurts... Christ, her head hurts. When the church grows in grace, Christ rejoices. In the same way, when the wife hurts, her husband hurts. When the wife is blessed, the husband is blessed. Now we have to think about why Christ sacrificed himself because he loved the church, because Paul brings that up as well. It was according to verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And verse 27, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, without spot or blemish. But holy and blameless, sorry. See, no Christ here works to present his own bride to himself as holy and attractive, without spot or blemish. By extension, perhaps, Christian husbands need to work to present brides to Christ as holy and blameless. See, headship is not just, I think, a divinely appointed casting vote to be used when decisions get really tough, as I think many people view it. Christian headship means taking initiative in both the personal and the spiritual realm. I don't know about you, but I find that really quite scary. Men, what does that mean for our own spiritual lives? at a time when many of our wives seem to be far more disciplined about Bible study and prayer and Christian service than ourselves. Are we unwittingly allowing a role reversal to take place? Are we unwittingly abdicating our special responsibility to be involved and to uh, enable our wives to grow spiritually and in maturity? You see, this teaching about male headship has probably many dangers, but at least four Husbands who become tyrannical and seek their own pleasure. 
wives who become bossy and refuse to submit. The wives we talked about already who become doormats, forgetting that they are made equal in God's eyes. But perhaps, as C.S. Lewis suggests, the real danger is not that husbands may grasp their crown of thorns too eagerly, but that they will allow or even compel their wives to usurp it. In other words, husbands who abdicate their responsibilities, husbands who abdicate their crown of thorns. Now some of you may be thinking, well, I'm married to a non-Christian. How does this apply to me? And I think it is more difficult because there's not that same theological balance which has been so carefully constructed here by Paul. Um, And I think perhaps 1 Peter and chapter 3 is a more useful passage in some ways. But even there, Peter's advice to Christian wives is to submit so that if non-believing husbands may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. So for all of us, it is so easy to get married wrong. But if we get it right, the parallel being drawn between Christian marriage and Christ's love for the church is profound. As somebody once wrote, the very best things about marriage, the greatest intimacy, the strongest mutual understanding, the deepest love that a husband and wife ever felt for each other, all of this just gives a tiny, tiny, tiny glimpse of the intimacy and understanding and love that Christ has for his people, which will stretch into all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we've uh, left many things unsaid this morning. And we pray, Lord, that the things that have been said would be f- have been from you. We pray, Lord, that we would learn to get things right in our marriages and also in our other relationships, whether that's with parents, with children, with work colleagues, our bosses or our subordinates, that we may begin to apply some of these principles in our lives. Change us, Lord, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen.